This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Christine Mangan, author of the novel Palace of the Drowned. And one of the things I was really interested in exploring was the relationship between a writer and their work, and particularly that moment when, you know, it's not their own anymore. It's gone out into the world. We'll be back with Christine Mangan in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Christine Mangan, author of the New York Times bestselling novel, Tangerine. She has her PhD in English from University College Dublin with a focus on 18th century Gothic literature and an MFA in fiction writing from the University of Southern Maine. Her new novel is called Palace of the Drowned, which takes place in 1966 Venice, Italy. The main character, Frankie, is a writer who after a particularly bad book review and a public breakdown, travels to Venice to heal and recharge and prepare to write another novel. She is staying alone in her best friend Jack's house, waiting for Jack to arrive. As Jack delays her arrival, Frankie reflects on elements of their relationship that she doesn't like and also moments when she took her frustrations out on Jack. Then a young woman named Gilly appears, who is eager to become Frankie's friend and insinuates herself into the writer's lonely life in Venice. But there is some sort of evil brewing beneath Gilly's playful facade, 
and Frankie must question what is true and what is not in her own life and the relationships she's forged with Gilly and Jack. The more Frankie probes, the more lies come to the surface about Gilly. And then a rainstorm turns into a catastrophic and now historic flood in Venice. We began the interview with Christine Mangan sharing the appeal of the thriller genre. You know, when I look back, I mean, growing up, those were kind of the stories that I think I was drawn to most. I was huge fan of Louisa May Alcott, <laughs> um, not, not Little Women, but all her um, gothic tales. And I really, really loved those. And I think that kind of um, started me on that path of, of um, reading that kind of literature. I think I really enjoyed the fact that there's so many different layers, I feel like, in Gothic. If you want to just read kind of that surface story, you can do that. And it's great. You know, it's it's fun. It's exciting. It's thrilling. Um and then the thrillers we have today, psychological thrillers, you know, you can see the evolution um, coming from, from those, those gothic tales. And I think you can read them like that and, and enjoy them on that level, or you can kind of dig deeper because I think there's always with gothic um, something more. And when I was younger and I would read them, I didn't really necessarily understand what it was. You know, I didn't understand kind of what was there, but I knew that there was something there. Um, and you kind of get to play detective in a way, I think. And that's essentially what drew me kind of to the world of, of academia for a while too, because I love um, I love doing research. I love kind of getting involved in books and kind of peeling back the layers and, and seeing what else is there. And so I think that that genre just kind of, I mean, it lends itself to that. It's, you know, historically kind of served as a place where, um, especially women could kind of give voice, you know, to, to the things that they couldn't um, for, you know, in, in terms of um, the restraints placed on them. And so you kind of have to, to be able to, to kind of read between the lines and, and see what else is, is really there. And that, that just always really appealed to me. And I think that's why I kind of returned to those stories. I think that's why that's, that's what I like to write. It's just, it's a reflection of, of what I like to read essentially. Do you remember the first time you sort of peeled back a layer, what story that was and what you discovered? Yeah, I think with Louisa May Alcott, you know, she's got a lot of shorter um, like novellas and they all kind of deal with these women who are running away from kind of either tyrannical husbands or, you know, are kind of trying to kind of better themselves, you know, this one um, behind a mask, which I love. And that's one of the, I, one of the first ones I really remember reading. Um, and I just love it because it's, you know, you can read it on that surface level of, it's about this woman who kind of shows up as a governess. And by the end of the book, she is essentially a mistress of the house. <laughs> um, but, you know, she essentially kind of portrays these different roles that are expected of her and she kind of uses that to her advantage and so it's about you know it's about agency it's about performance and and how she kind of navigates this world um in a way that she's able to to kind of better herself and there was something just so intriguing about that and and I kind of continually go back to to those type of stories (laughs) So Palace of the Drowned takes place in 1966 in Venice, Italy, and your main character is named Frankie, and she is a writer who had much acclaim in her first book, and she is from London, but her subsequent books have gotten, they just haven't been of the same caliber and passion as her first book, and she has a a bad review. The bad review sends her over the edge a little bit. And she has a breakdown, a public breakdown in London and ends up going to Venice to sort of recuperate after spending some time getting help in England. And when she's there, she meets this young woman named Gilly. And Gilly turns out to be like a super fan, like an obsessed fan who weasels her way into her life. And they have 
is kind of a fraught relationship. Like Frankie's always questioning Gilly and what her motives are. And she uncovers lie after lie about why Gilly is there and how they relate. And it turns out Gilly wants her to read her manuscript. And so you have that sort of mystery and tension going on. And then at the same time, she's staying in her best friend who's named Jack's house in Venice, her her family house. And she hears noises and there's some mysteries going on. And it's also, you know, 1966 for a female in Italy. There's a great flood that goes on. So there's all this sort of tension about some of the mysteries between her and Gilly and what's going on in, in Venice and tensions between her relationship with Jack because because of the breakdown she had and because Jack has always supported her, but Jack also has a husband and Frankie's kind of jealous of that relationship. So that is kind of all the action and going on in the plot. So what were you thinking about when you started started writing this about maybe character or setting or, or what you wanted to be at the center question of this story? I, it all started with Frankie with this novel. I kind of had a very clear idea of who she was as a character and what I wanted to do with her essentially. And one of the things I was really interested in exploring was the relationship between a writer and their work. And particularly that moment when, you know, it's not their own anymore. It's gone out into the world and whether, you know, you've got the process of editor and kind of all these different voices helping to shape what this this final thing is going to be and then of course it going out into the world and being kind of consumed by by readers by reviewers and kind of what that means and and how that that kind of influences a writer and and what they go through and obviously it's something um for Frankie that going through this last novel is a bit is a bit more fraught because she's had this terrible review and and it's affected her greatly and I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing um to to look at in kind of my academic work that was something that kind of came up quite a bit um the relationship between writers and the reviewers and it's I mean because it's just something that's always been there and this idea of you know how that influences what you write and and kind of always being kind of in you know the back of your mind and I was just really kind of intrigued by that and then also um trying to I'm trying to think of how to say this without giving away too much of, of what happens but just um the idea also of future generations because Frankie kind of thinks about this later on of, of the idea of people coming to your work you know kind of long past um, when she's still alive and and taking your book off the shelf and looking at it and trying to kind of almost piece together your life through fiction. I think that's really kind of an interesting idea too. I mean, in academia, a lot of people don't like that idea, um, trying to kind of piece together an author's life based on, on what they wrote. But ultimately, it does kind of come up when you are writing about an author and their work and you're trying to kind of figure out well what was this about what was this actually trying to say and I think that's a really interesting thing especially when you don't necessarily agree with it but you can't as as a writer really say anything because you can't you can't tell people no you're wrong that's not what I was saying you know it's it's what they take away from it it's what they um interpret and I think coming from a background like a creative background and an academic background it's a bit it's interesting because I think about that and I think about the stuff I wrote and if these 18th century writers, you know, could see what I wrote, if they would just be like, what in the world is she talking about? This is not, you know, what I, what I created. This is not what I wrote about at all. Um, and so I really, I just wanted to look at that kind of what happens when the book is no longer your own, I guess. It just takes on its own life and and how the writer reacts to that. How was that experience for you in your last book and did that influence how you wrote this one? So I, <laughs> I try to avoid that as much as possible. I kind of, I don't want to see anything. Like I don't want to see any reviews whatsoever, um, good or bad. Don't even want to know that they exist. It, it definitely is something that, that I try to avoid. In the book, Frankie loves it. She wants to see like every little thing that someone has written. You know, she wants to kind of talk to them and argue with them. And um, that 
is definitely not something that I could ever do or would want to do. Um, I did have some sent to me last time and it was just, they were not, they were not good ones. <laughs> it was just not a good experience and not a good feeling. And I definitely think it, it weighs, at least for me, I get very anxious about those things. I get very like upset about those things. I probably take it a little bit too personally. That's why it's kind of taken me so long to write something else and to be able to kind of willing to part with that and put it out in the world again. Because it does, it makes you, I think, a little bit hesitant. It's a very strange feeling to have people write about something that you've written. It's just very strange. It's not something I think I will ever get used to. Is that hard to have the willpower? No, I think for me, it's really easy because I just don't, I don't look at anything online. Like I just don't do anything. I think the biggest thing is letting other people know, I don't want to see this because people will be like, look, it's here. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't even, it's a hard thing to explain, but like even knowing about the existence of a review just makes me very paranoid. There's something about it that just really kind of upsets me. Just even knowing that it exists, not even knowing if it's good or bad, but just knowing that it exists. I just, I, I don't want to know. <laughs> and did that experience impact how you wrote Frankie or was, were you kind of, were they overlapping? It, I don't know if it, it, it um, ultimately affected it. I think it just affected my hesitancy to just let go of the manuscript basically to be to to get to that point where I was like okay I'm ready to send this to my agent I'm ready and I actually before this I wrote I wrote pretty much an entire other novel finished it and then I just had a moment of no that's not the one I want to put out I don't want to do that and my agent was very nice and understanding and then I kind of went back and this felt more right in a way that the other one didn't so I think it hasn't it hasn't influenced or affected what I'm writing, but I think it's just affected kind of my willingness to, to let it go um, and leave my hands, basically. And you were saying earlier that, you know, what this began for you with thinking about Frankie and thinking about writing and what your writing means in the world and how you outlast it. And how did those thoughts then move this novel to be 1966 in Venice around the time of this big historic flood? I think I'm always kind of drawn to, to different time periods just because in both novels, the, the women that I'm writing about find themselves kind of isolated. I, I like the idea that they're in places that, and for Frankie, you know, she's in a place that she is an outsider and she's kind of further cut off. I mean, Venice is kind of its own, you know, strange little bubble. Um, and without cell phones, without kind of anything that we have, you know, she's even um, further removed. And I knew that I wanted her to kind of go to that space just so that she could uh, essentially get away from everything else, you know, away from from things that reminded her um, of of London, of what happened in London. Um, and of course, that's kind of um, the bubble is burst when when Gilly shows up and it's kind of all flooding back to her and the fact that she can't really escape or outrun this. Um, and she just needs to kind of deal with it at some point. You know, she has to go back to London at some point. And so I think um, Venice was just kind of the perfect the perfect answer because it's not only you know, distantly removed from London, but it's just distantly removed from the rest of Italy too. It is kind of its own little world. And so it just, it, it kind of fit perfectly. And then the time frame, um, I think just lends itself to that as well, because even with the flood, um, when it did happen and when it does happen in the book, you know, she's cut off, like she doesn't really know what's going on. Um, she can't really look on a cell phone and see what's happening and, and she's by herself. And, and so I think all that just kind of heightens the tension and the immediacy of what's happening. And when you decided that it was 1966, mm -hmm. were you, did you know about the flood and want to center it around the flood? Or did you say, I want it to be in the sixties and started researching and then you discovered the flood? I loved the idea of the Aqua Alta because it is this kind of very threatening thing. And it is, especially I think to people who, um, are not from Venice, you know, it's a really kind of strange and scary concept. And I was, I was there like when the sirens went off and it is very jarring. You wake up and you're wondering what's happening. Um, so I kind of, I was aware of the flood, um, 
and it all just kind of came together. I was like, this is, this is the perfect moment then to have that because I think, um, for her, it just heightens what's happening in that moment. And it throws her into a bit of panic. And um, even the sound of the sirens, you know, bringing back her past in, in the war and things like that. So it all just kind of perfectly fit together. Because this is so much about writing on so many levels, because she's a writer, and it's not just that she's a writer, but she's thinking so much about the process. Um, she's thinking about everything from from first lines because that comes up in in the the first the bad review to the passion that that maybe moved her first novel and and how you get that so i wanted to ask you about first lines because in the the review that kind of sunk her the reviewer who is unknown to her she doesn't know who this person is um writes the first line failed to transport me and i'm wondering is that the job of the first line? Oh, I love first lines. I think I put a lot more weight on them um, maybe prior to these. But I, I think I still put a lot of weight on it because, I mean, when I pick up a book, that's what I look at is the first line. And I kind of wait for it to, like, take me somewhere and to make me say, yes, I, wanna, I want to buy this book. I want to read it. Um, I think, too, that when I start... Um, the actual process of writing when I'm kind of past the notes and everything. Um, I always seem to have the beginning and the end. Those are the only two things that don't ever really change. Um, like I'll revise them and things like that. But I think, I think I do put a lot of kind of importance on that first line and, and thinking about it and, and, and just wanting to get it right. So it does essentially draw you in and and make you want to to continue that's I mean that's definitely what I look for when I pick up a book in a bookstore will you read the first line of palace of the drowned and tell us about how you came to it so in the prologue um and we've got outside the Roma Termini station she came to an abrupt halt I will say my first line I still kind of consider to be chapter one because that's what I started with the prologue was added later. Um, so <laughs> chapter one has a different first sentence. Oh, this is this is my like, this is what I would consider my first sentence. <laughs> so um, she was on her way to the Rialto market, hoping to buy some vongole from one of the local fishmongers, despite the fact that it was October and therefore not really the season for them when she felt someone grab her by the wrist. That was my first line that I wrote. Um, and I just wanted it to essentially kind of give a sense of the place, but then also have that, that moment of what is happening um, and draw readers in, in that way. And I think in a lot of places when I travel, I always tend to bump into people that I somehow, I don't know them, but I know them through somebody else or they're from somewhere nearby that that I've lived or I've been to and I think there's just something I don't there's something very off-putting about when you meet someone from a context of your life that you're kind of not expecting to in this new place and it 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 can seem a little bit unnerving you wonder you know how in the world have you managed to run into this person um, in this place so far from home that that you shouldn't know? And, and that's kind of what, what happens in the scene. So um, the idea of the first sentence was just to kind of get a sense of the place and then kind of grab you in with, with what's happening. Was that the first thing you wrote? It was actually, yes. Yeah, that whole scene um, with Frankie running into Gilly, that was the first bit that I wrote. That's pretty cool that it survived. I know. Yeah, it's this tends to happen. It's the first and then the last bit that always kind of is there, and it goes it goes through revisions, but it's 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 still pretty much true to what it was in the beginning. Another thing you write about is, and you embody this in a way. Um, in the beginning of the book, she goes to an opera uh, with Gilly, and she's ta she's thinking about that moment right before it opens um what it feels like and she compares it to writing her first novel and she she uses words like 
um, when she wrote her first novel, she was being swallowed and consumed and overwhelmed. And that was um, a lot. Uh, Her novel was kind of generated through the death of her parents. So she was in a really emotional place. But I just wanted to ask you about that feeling because you might not always, she had a five book contract. You might not always feel that, that intensity when you go to the page. And I just wanted to ask you about that, investigating that, that feeling going to the page for her and then not having it. And and then also what it feels like for you. There's this anticipation. And I think that for me, that's when I get a sense of okay, this is the right novel. This is what I want to write because I get kind of excited about what could be, I guess. You know, you get, you have these kind of half-formed ideas, but there is this kind of excitement for for what it could become. Um, And I think comparing that to, you know, that moment in theater, I did a lot of um, acting when I was younger and I still remember like the sense of the smell of the stage and the lights and the dust and everything like right before you go on and I think it is very similar you know you get this kind of butterfly feeling and this oh do I want to do this you know it's you have to commit to this you have to see it through Um, but at the same time it's really thrilling and exciting and and it makes you want to move forward with it and I think that for Frankie she had that sense of urgency, especially with that first novel of, of sitting down and just being able to kind of let it overwhelm her and kind of take over her and, and to get it all down on the page. And that's something that she hasn't felt in the same way in the novels um, that have come out since. And, and the reviews kind of reflect that, you know, they're not terrible reviews. Um, they're just kind of mediocre and a lot of people aren't really saying anything and, and she knows it and she feels it and she can't kind of manage to, to recapture that, that same kind of feeling. Um, and so it does kind of feel like going through the motions, you know, she talks about the fact that people just tell her kind of carry on and push through it. And, you know, she's come to the point where she started to, to wonder, is that the best idea? Because she doesn't, feel that anymore. And I think for me, that's, that's kind of like with that other novel that I decided to put aside, I think that I didn't feel that same sense of excitement about it. Um, and I always kind of ask, is this something that I would want to sit down and read? And if I don't want to read it, then I don't really want to write it and put it out there. Um, so I think you, you kind of have to have that sense of, um, excitement and, you know, an urgency to kind of get it down. I think that's, for me, it's a good, it's a good indication of, okay, this is working. This is, this is something to continue and to complete. Is it hard to maintain throughout the course of a whole book, that urgency and excitement? Like you might go many days so excited, but then you might just kind of lose interest one day, but you're in the middle. I don't know if that happens, but. That ha- I mean, that's essentially why I have a lot of unfinished novels. <laughs> I get about halfway and then something happens where I'm like, oh, no, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I think for me, a good sign is I tend to I handwrite everything first. And so I handwrite as much as possible. And then I'll have um, like a couple days where I type everything up. And I think a good sign is when I have not that everything's filled out, but I can see everything and then it's something that, that interests me, that excites me, that I can continue with. But I mean, there are, of course, moments where it's tedious. And, you know, I remember I had um, a professor in, in college and she was like, oh, let's be honest, the writing is terrible. She's like, it's just something you've got to slog through and get done and just finish. And yes, I can see that on certain days, but I think especially when I'm writing the new bits, there's always some kind of level of interest. And if I'm not, if I'm not feeling it, then I'll just walk away and leave it. Like I'm not someone who says I have to sit here from like nine in the morning to noon and get this done. That, that doesn't really work for me. So I think when I'm first writing the story, I kind of let it come as it comes. And then when I get to revisions, that's when I really kind of sit down. I'm like, okay, just got to slog through it. Just get it, got to get it done. And so that that's like a different feeling at that moment. But when I'm writing all the new stuff, um, generally, you know, I try to kind of do it only when I'm really feeling it, when I'm when I'm excited about what I'm doing. So the novel itself definitely has a feminist 
bent to it because all the characters are women and you have this woman writer. It's 1966. I thought it was interesting that Frankie and Jack had male sounding names. I felt like it was probably deliberate. I mean, honestly, I just liked the names. They seemed really strong and perfect for the characters. But then when I realized that they were both male sounding names, it just kind of fit. It just, it kind of fit with who they are. And especially as women um, in the sixties and the fact that they are fairly independent and kind of moving about, you know, by themselves. And it just, it just kind of worked. And I think speaks to their character even, even more. So how do you go about when you know you want to write a thriller and you say that you, you know, sort of the beginning and the end and how that will go. And with, something that's thrilling and mysterious, you have to modulate the tension and the suspense and the release of information or even the release of information we think we know or that the characters think they know and maybe that's not exactly what they know later. How do you balance all that? How do you craft that? I think a lot of that happens in revisions because what I originally write just sometimes doesn't work. I I like things that... I think, ask the reader to kind of decide. And I like things that are left open-ended a little bit. I find something more intriguing about that. But I think it's it's a balance that I have to kind of be aware of, especially in the revision process, because I think sometimes I have a tendency to leave them too open. Um, and then you know, people I have look at it will be like, well, I don't understand what's happening at all. And to me, it's so clear because it's in my head and, you know, I know exactly what it is. Um, But I think, yeah, it just has to be layered in essentially. And you have to kind of go back and make sure that everything tracks and that there are enough, you know, kind of clues that people can follow them and kind of decide for themselves things that are left open-ended and, and, you know, that there's enough there that it just kind of creates this, this, feeling of unease that I think kind of pervades most of the book because you don't know what's happening and you don't really understand. And, and Gilly is this kind of strange figure who, who appears kind of out of nowhere and, you know, her motivations are very clouded and you're not entirely sure. Um, And even Frankie's not entirely sure. And, and so it's a hard thing to kind of balance. I think the idea of like, how much do you give away? How much can you kind of keep and, and, and let the reader kind of decide for themselves. So is that process for you important that someone else reads it and helps you when you're trying to modulate so much information and tension? Or is that something that you can really look at if you just take a little break from the page and then come back to it? I think a bit of both, but I think I get to a point where it is helpful to have somebody to look um, because again, it's, it's all in my own head and it's, I know what's happening and I can clearly see, you know, but sometimes what I think is really obvious is not at all. And I, that's kind of what I always need a little bit of guidance of because there's stuff that, you know, I'll get comments back and they'll be like, well, isn't that exactly what I already have there? Isn't that on the page? And apparently it's not. It just needs to be, I think, a little bit more clearly stated or clearly defined. I think some of the stuff that I initially do in those early drafts just turns out to be a bit too um, ambivalent. And I just need to to kind of go back and add those details a little bit more so that, you know, it hits it, hits it a bit um better. And I mean, it it does, it helps it, you know, it creates more of that urgency. It creates um, more of an atmosphere. So um, I, I can take it to a certain point, but then the comments, the feedback are really helpful. Is there anything you learned from studying so much Gothic literature, even though it was 18th century that came to play for you in, in writing this? I think that, I mean, I think that because it's the stuff that I just, I'd like to read, you know, that is kind of what I always go back to, um, those types of stories. And I think just a lot of the themes, a lot of the ideas in them, um, are ones that resonate with me and that, that I feel like I bring to my work. I mean, questions of, you know, agency and especially in the context of the time periods that I'm writing. Um, I think all of that, you know, it might not have the same 
tropes is gothic. There might not be a castle or, you know, a, a tyrannical husband, but I think there are elements there that, that, that I kind of pull from continually and, and, um, and try to kind of infuse in my own writing. So it is definitely something that's always kind of in the back of my mind. And, um, those are just the books that I love to read as well. And, you know, thrillers and, um, kind of everything that's evolved from Gothic. So I think I always have that, you know, in my mind somewhere. So it definitely influences what I, what I put onto the page. You know, you're talking about the relationship that you might have to a reader because they can help you clarify mm-hmm. something that you didn't quite get on the page in the way that you thought. And I'm also interested in the relationship between a writer and an editor in the book. Uh, Frankie has, I would say like a pretty close relationship with her editor, Harold. I think he also is very concerned for her and he has a motivation because she has one more book in her five book deal and he needs to get that out of her. So there's definitely some cajoling there, but at a party, I think it was early on after her first book came out he mentioned to someone that he basically gave her the idea for the ending. And it kind of leads to this question, not exactly of who wrote the book, because she wrote the book, but there's sort of all the language and the words, and then there's the plot, and and the ending is very important. And so that relationship between her and him, or any editor, maybe, and writer, comes into question there. And I, I just wanted to ask you about that, that element. I find it, I find it really interesting. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, going through the process as a writer, because, you know, you show it to different people, you show it to your agent, your editor. I mean, the copy editor, all of these people who have suggestions, you know, some of them are small, some of them are big, but even the small ones, you know, changing of words and things like that, it just, it all adds up to something, you know, it all adds up to, to other people kind of having this, this influence so that what you end up with is, in, it's got to be in some ways different than, you know, what you started with. And I find that just a really interesting idea. And in my academic work, I actually looked at, and I was kind of thinking about this when I was, when I was writing Palace of the Drowned as well, I looked at a German gothic novel and it was basically sent over to England to be translated and the translator basically just wrote some new parts and put them in and he changed because this is when you look at it it's not just the content he changed but theme as well like there was a real thematic influence to to what he put because he kind of concentrated on completely different things and when the original author found out and got that book, he looked at it and was like, oh, I actually really like this. And so he printed it again with those changes. And it just kind of brings up questions of, of authorship. You know, who is the author in, in that sense? Who do you credit as the author of this book when there's all these different voices? Um, and I just find that it's an interesting thing. And it is an interesting process because you get suggestions, you know, you get, oh, what about this? And then, you know, a piece of dialogue or, you know, a paragraph. And well, if you take that and put that in, is that yours technically? So you do, you know, it is kind of a, an interesting thing. Uh, I mean, it's yours at the end of it. And it's, you know, something that I recognize, but I, I recognize the influence of, of everyone else who has helped essentially to make it, you know, um, a better product in the end. Um, but yeah, I, I find I find questions of, of of authorship and just, you know, everything relating to that really interesting. I think too it's it's probably hard for people also not to have their ego come into mm-hmm. it. So oh, yeah. if someone is changing your dialogue a little bit, that might be minor. But if someone changes what happens at to the end and it's so much better than your own and you write that I'm sure there's like hurt feelings and and guilt and like maybe feelings of inadequacy even after it's published. Uh, Yeah, because I mean, you spend all this time and you think, oh, this is perfect. This is, you know, and then other people kind of, I mean, even for me going through copy edits and, you know, suggesting when people suggest different words and it's not because the word is wrong. They just think this sounds better. You have this moment of, well, why? Like, why do I have to do this? I'm the one who wrote this. I want to keep it this way. Um, 
it's hard to be, I think, objective. And, and I find, you know, you just have to kind of step away and then come back to it and not, not take it so personally and not get so upset over it. I think the PhD work really helped prepare me for that too. Because in some ways, I feel like I just never left the PhD, like working on it, because when I was doing that, you know, I would submit my work to my supervisors, get the comments and feedback. Um, and now I have my my agent and my editor. It's kind of the same thing. I just I get the comments back. So I think I was a little bit more prepared. But um, yeah, I imagine that some people get quite angry and probably refuse to take suggestions or advice just for that same reason. It's kind of, you know, a dent to the ego a bit. And did you go to Venice specifically to research this? Yeah, well, because it was interesting with with this book. Um, like I said, it really began with Frankie. And I knew, I kind of had the basic idea of the story. And I knew that I wanted to put her somewhere when she leaves London. That would be a bit isolating. And I wasn't I wasn't 100% sure where I really wanted to set it. And then I remembered um, my friend who who specializes in Italian art history. She had told me, we worked together in Dubai, and she had told me one day, we were just kind of like sweating under the sun, and she was telling me about Venice um, in the winter when it's cold and dark and rainy and uh, really gothic. And she was like, you need to go there. You need to see it. And I had only been there once before, and it was in the summer, so it was the height of tourist season and I was there my partner and I had gone to um Slovenia on a we were doing a road trip and we decided to pop over just for the day because we're like we can't afford Venice we can't actually stay there so we'll just park the car take the train in um and it was lovely it was nice and um it was, I think I said it was like Disneyland for adults at the time. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was lovely. We sat down, we had beers, we got charged like $30 for it because, you know, you pay for the musicians and everything. And I don't think I ever thought I would go back. Um, but I started thinking about what my friend said and I, you know, had an idea that that might be the perfect place to to set the novel. So um, I went for a couple of weeks when it was cold and dark and rainy um, and it was just a completely different experience. And my friend wrote me like this very intensive tour guide, essentially. She was my tour guide when I was there. And it was just little things that you, I think, wouldn't necessarily see if you were just there kind of for, you know, a day or two. And so I felt like I got to kind of live like a, you know, everyday life there for a bit. And and as soon as I got there, I just realized this is the perfect place. This makes sense for this book. Was that before you started or were you in the midst of, of drafting? I, I was in the midst of, I had written quite a bit and I had written it in a way where um, I had a lot of scenes. I had a lot of dialogue and I was, and I had written the bits in London and I was kind of holding back. I had a, I had an inkling that Venice was going to be right. And so I was starting to write it, but in a way that, was very vague. I just, I cannot write about a place that I haven't been to. I find that very difficult. I know some people can do that with just like research and looking at photos and things, but I think for me, I feel too worried that I'm not going to get it right. You know, there's just, I think there's something you have to go to these places to be able to see what it's like, or you miss certain details that I think make it a bit more authentic. Um, and so I had a very kind of it, it was a very like rough draft um, where it was Venice, but it wasn't Venice. And so then I went and I was able to kind of, um, I worked while I was there. Like I went to the library and I wrote and and all of it kind of came together then. Well, we we really haven't talked about the character of Gilly and I, I wouldn't want to leave the interview without doing that. And so Gilly is young. She's 27. She is an aspiring writer. We find out she is like a major fangirl of Frankie's work and she does consistently lie to Frankie and Frankie somehow just keeps forgiving her for various reasons. Maybe some are unknown to herself. Some is just simple loneliness. Gilly does have like a little bit of charm to her. So can you just talk about Gilly? I think I was very conscious of kind of this new versus old, this, you know, more traditional kind of writing. And then this new, you know, she's very into experimental type of writing. And I wanted that to be kind of 
the sticking point between them. You know, Frankie's from like a very classical background, I would say, and, and Gilly is very much not. And so that's kind of always a, a problem um, between them. But Gilly is young. She's enthusiastic. You know, she hasn't lived through the same things that, that Frankie has. And Frankie kind of envies her for that, but she also kind of resents her as well. And she is someone who you know, she is very young and the lies that she tells are ones that they seem really strange. But I think, you know, when you when you think about when you're younger and, you know, maybe she tells them just because she's embarrassed, you know, she doesn't want to um, admit certain things or she doesn't want to be, you know, she's trying to kind of make herself seem more interesting than she is. I mean, it's little things like that. Like I can see, I can understand like her white lies that she doesn't think they're any big deal, but for Frankie, they just seem stranger and stranger. And, you know, it, 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 with everything else that has happened, it really puts her, um, on edge because she doesn't know what this girl wants from her and she doesn't know um, why she keeps coming around essentially. You know, she questions her motivations and Gilly is just coming from that, that vantage point of youth and being enthusiastic and, and Frankie is someone that she greatly admires. You know, she is this female writer who has kind of done it on her own. And I would say all the things that, that Gilly admires in her, Frankie finds kind of irksome about Gilly, the differences, you know, the fact that she kind of uses connections and, you know, doesn't have a problem with that in terms of kind of furthering her career. And um, so they can't ever kind of seem to to come together without there being a little bit of, of discord. But yeah, I just wanted, it. Gilly is kind of the things that Frankie maybe didn't have an opportunity to be. And I think that there is some kind of resentment there towards her. And, you know, she thinks about everything that she's done to get where she is and um, to have the success that that she has and on her own and by herself. And so that is kind of a sticking point for them. Frankie is undone by this young woman. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's kind of, you know, it's just, she is everything that, that Frankie is not. And, and it is just, to the point where it's too much. And I think, you know, had they met at another time in Frankie's life, then perhaps it would have been different, but it's, you know, she's in this kind of very precarious moment where she is rattled by the review. You know, she's rattled by the fact that she can't seem to kind of get her writing back on track where, you know, Gilly has this manuscript that she's excited about that other people are excited about. And there is this jealousy. There definitely is a jealousy um, there. And it just, yeah, it just completely undoes her. I think that jealousy and envy is very present in the writing world. And it's hard to talk about. I think, I think that Frankie, I mean, I think I tried to kind of put some of that into it because I think there's always this what's new, like what's shiny, you know, what's the new shiny thing that everybody is interested in. And Frankie used to be that. And now people are not as interested and she's starting to really feel that and she's frustrated and she's angry by it. And then along comes this, you know, young, bright thing that everybody's really excited about. And she's really resentful and she's really angry and I think a lot of that anger she's kept in a bit and it just kind of comes out when she's presented with everything that that she no longer is basically and she's um just can't really control it essentially you know she is she is furious with this girl and and everything that she represents essentially one of the blurbs on the back of the book that says fans of the talented Mr. Ripley will love the fast-paced thriller and I'm wondering about if you've read The Talented Mr. Ripley and, and um, any thoughts about that? I have not. I've seen the movie. That's what, I feel like that's a horrible thing to say, but I have never actually read the book. I love the movie. Um, I always kind of worry about those comparisons and the fast-paced. I'm not sure it's fast. I'm not sure what I write is fast-paced because a lot of, I think people have found it's very slow. And when they approach it, as a thriller, some people are disappointed because it's not kind of a typical, I mean, especially with Palace of the Drown, it's not your typical thriller. It's kind of a slow, creeping sense of unease, I would say, um, rather than kind of a typical thriller would be. I think there's, yeah, I don't know. I'm always, I'm always a little worried about that. <laughs> 
Well, I think yours does have, I mean, you can sense more of that feeling of the Gothic, that that rainy, dark, cold, wintry, slow creep. Yeah, I would say it's a slow creep rather than kind of, because I, I think people come to it expecting one thing and then it's not that. And um, yeah, I think it, it builds, it builds slowly. Can you read something that influenced you as a writer? I actually picked something because I know I've already spoken about it today, um, but from behind a mask, Louise Mayoka. <laughs> so this is, I mentioned before, but I mean, essentially it follows this governess who is not quite who she seems to be. And when she first arrives at this house, you know, she's young and she's beautiful and um, kind of everything you would expect in that typical heroine. And then she goes uh, into her room and is by herself. This is at the end of chapter one. And so this is when we see her by herself for the first time. Still sitting on the floor, she unbound and removed the long abundant braids, braids from her head, wiped the pink from her face, took out several pearly teeth and slipping off her dress appeared herself indeed, a haggard, worn and moody woman of 30 at least. The metamorphosis was wonderful, but the disguise was more in the expression she assumed than in any art of costume or false adornment. Now she was alone and her mobile features settled into their natural expression, weary, hard, bitter. She had been lovely once, happy, innocent, and tender, but nothing of all this remained to the gloomy woman who, who leaned there brooding over some wrong or loss or disappointment which had darkened all her life. For an hour she sat so, sometimes playing absently with the scanty locks that hung about her face, sometimes lifting the glass to her lips as if the fiery drought warmed her cold blood, and once she half uncovered her breast to eye with a terrible glance, the scar of a newly healed wound. At last she rose and crept to bed, like one worn out with weariness and mental pain. <laughs> so I was just thinking about it. It was the first thing I thought of to read just because you know, of all the books I've read, I can give, I can give a synopsis, you know, I can talk about if I liked it or not. And probably even where, you know, I might've been where I read the book, but I actually remember reading that. And I remember reading that passage and I was really young when I read it and just having this moment of almost like goosebumps and just being like, what is happening here? You know, it was just something so strange. And I remember just being so like spooked by it essentially. And I loved it. And I got the sense of, am I understanding this? Do I know what's actually happening? Um, and I think that that kind of set me on my, my love of Gothic and, you know, just those moments of just unease when, um, you know, I feel like not a lot of books do that so well. And I think she does it really well. And especially in that moment, just because you've had this entire chapter of this young, innocent, you know, girl, and then you have her removing her teeth and her hair and just, um, you get chills from it a little bit, or I did the first time I read it. And I just wondered what was happening. And I think it made me want to write stuff like that. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah. So in Tangerine, um, originally, there were three main characters, actually, uh, instead of just the two, Lucy and Alice. And um, it got to the point where everyone who read it was like, this is great. I love this character. But it takes away from the story because it's mainly, it's about these two women and takes away from like the, the urgency and the immediacy of it. And so I had to go back and basically unthread him from, from the novel. Um, and I really loved his character and it was kind of sad to, to take him out. So this is just a little piece of that. Um, sitting at the hotel, he would often look out at the port, the ocean just beyond, his gaze eventually wandering over the buildings to the right, painted a deep red, a light pink, a startlingly clear blue and yellow. Lines of laundry were always strung in between them, a tenuous link that held each building together, a jumbled mess that made it impossible to pick out where one began and the other ended. He reveled in its chaos. He breathed it in, the smell of baking somewhere in the distance. This was real. This was home. And yet it no longer was. It was a peculiar realization, one that still caught in his throat every time he remembered. Things had changed. Things were changing. And he, no long, and he was no longer a part of it. He was stopped, stalled in the past, too old to move ahead and into the future, too stubborn, he supposed some would say. 
And so he had packed his belongings, amazed and perhaps even a little dismayed, to find that an entire life could be reduced to a single suitcase. No matter, he told himself, it was fine. He could feel the clock sounding, tick-tock, tick-tock. And he was ready to leave to begin the process of saying goodbye. His ticket was purchased, his resignation submitted, his departure set in stone, or so it seemed. And then she had appeared, the girl who looked like Cecile. Why did you choose that? I really liked that character, and it was kind of bittersweet to, to have to take him and his entire story out of uh, out of the novel, just because um, it just wasn't working with what the novel was. And um, it was a big thing. I mean, it was. It was like going in with scissors and kind of cutting it up because he was just embedded um, into the entire novel itself. And I haven't actually read that since. I haven't read any of it. I went through it today, and I was just thinking... Maybe that's something I will come back to eventually because I always really liked what what was there. It just, Tangerine wasn't his story. So perhaps he has another story in something else. Where do you write? I write anywhere that I am. I have been, for the past decade, I've been in a lot of places. Um, I haven't really had like a home base for, for any long amount of time. Um, and I tend to kind of just have to find places. I love, I love to write in coffee shops. I have to say, I know a lot of people are distracted, but when I'm in the process of putting together something new, I love to write in coffee shops. I think the only time that I really do well behind a desk, you know, in, in wherever it is that I'm living is when I'm doing revisions. And then I kind of get in that mode of like from, from morning to night, on the British Library. I love to write in the British Library. That's probably my favorite place in the entire world. I love the British Library. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I thought about that. I don't know if I necessarily do. I feel like everywhere I go, it's always kind of somewhere in the back of my mind. Like I carry a journal with me wherever I go because I always kind of have these thoughts and I need to like, you know, write them down and um, again, I'm, I don't do well with the whole like sit, you know, for a certain amount of times. I kind of try to write when it feels like the writing's coming. I think the only time where I really like chain myself to a desk is when I'm when I'm in revisions, and then I'll just sit all day. And then at the end of the day, I just want to like cook, or, like put something on in the background, and just kind of let my mind, you know, go and, and not think too much about anything. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, my partner, he has the lovely task of reading every single bad draft that I go through. I go through a lot of drafts um, and he reads everything first. And then I take it to my agent afterwards and she reads a lot of drafts as well. So I'm very thankful and grateful for both of them. How have you dealt with rejection? Probably by avoiding it as much as possible. I think that's why it took me so long to actually submit anything just because because I went and I got my um my BA in creative writing my MFA in creative writing but I just never really thought of actually submitting anywhere because I just thought well that's never going to happen that's never going to be a possibility um and when I actually did submit um tangerine to to agents it was kind of more out of desperation because I was having a really hard time finding an academic job and I just I was really worried if I can't find anything, what am I going to do? This is the only other thing that I know how to do. And so I just kind of sat down and I was like, I've got to finish this. I've got to send this off. And that is kind of the only reason that I finally did it is I was like, I don't know what else I'll do if I don't find a job somewhere. So yeah, I've, I avoided it for a very long time. And what is your favorite word? I don't know if I have a favorite word, but I will say for everything that I write, I tend to become obsessed with one or two words. I don't notice that when I'm writing, when I go in to revise, I start to think, oh, I've used that quite a bit. And oh, I've used that way too much. And so I have to go in and actually start to kind of take out everything. Um, it kind of changes. It definitely changes. Thank you so much for for your time and and for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Christine Mangan, author of the novel Palace of the Drowned. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Jess Walter. 
author of the novel Beautiful Ruins, which begins in Italy in 1962 and focuses on an almost love affair. We talked about how we use narrative in our lives, mining the meaning in his work, and the heartbreak of writing. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Kevin McElvoy, Jennifer Steinorth, Grant Faulkner, and Ben Winters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.